0: netcasts you love from people you trust this is twit bandwidth for home theater geeks is provided by cashfly at
1: c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y dot com this is home theater geeks with scott wilkinson recorded march 28th 2011 episode 59 Speaker legend Sandy Gross. Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here with ultimateavmag.com and hometheater.com. This week's guest geek is Sandy Gross, legendary speaker designer who has started more than his share of speaker companies. Hey, Sandy, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Those who are tuned in to the live video stream at live.twit.tv or in logged into the chat room at irc.twit.tv can post questions for Sandy, and I'll pass along as many as I can during the show. So, Sandy, I want to start with getting a little bit of history from you. Um, How did you get into this whole audiophile business and uh, become the speaker designer that you are today?
0: Well, I guess it started back in high school. I was the audiophile, and when I went to college, I went to Johns Hopkins. I was the guy in the dorm that had the big hi-fi system that everybody came around to and partied at. And uh, during college, it sort of continued. I got more and more into audio, went to my first CES show back when it was in New York. And then when I graduated from college, uh, myself and two friends of mine, uh, Matthew Polk and George Klopfer, started a classic garage speaker company, Polk Audio, that became quite successful. So I guess yep. that was the, the beginning.
1: I should say so. Uh, and Polk, of course, is still going strong. Um, when were you there?
0: I was there from the founding in 1972 until 1988, and then in 1988 I left because I had a dream—one of my dreams, which was to make make movies—and I went out to California. I met a couple. Um, producers, I guess, and started in the uh, movie business, which was a little crazier than the audio business and maybe <laughs> a little too crazy for me,
1: <laughs> <laughs> even a little too crazy for you. Huh? <laughs> okay. So a couple of years in the, in the movie business per, uh, convinced you that, uh, nah, I don't think I'm going to go in the movie business. <laughs> so, uh, it. so what then? Well, in
0: 1990, I thought that it was time to, uh, time to get back to a little bit something more real, and I decided to start another speaker company, and this time with two friends of mine from Canada, and we started Definitive Technology in 1990, which again became uh, quite successful.
1: A seriously successful company, and still to this day, I mean, uh, De- Definitive Technology is one of the one of the preeminent speaker companies uh, certainly in America, if not the world.
0: Yeah, it's, it's been very, very successful. Both of my first companies were, were quite successful. In fact, I understand that if you add up the sales of both of them, they would have a number one uh, position in terms of loudspeaker sales outside Hmm. of somebody like Bose, which is a whole different thing.
1: Yeah. Well, let's not go there. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, well, tell me a little bit about your speaker design philosophy at the time. I mean, you were you were designing speakers for Polk and then for Definitive Technology. What sort of approach did you take at that time uh, in terms of speaker design?
0: Well, I guess what's really been the most important thing for me in speakers is their ability to to disappear in the room you know their ability to well to make it sound like you're listening to live musicians in your room or conversely that you were in the room that the musicians were performing in mm. and you know speakers we wanted to disappear the imaging has always been very very critical to me in every product that I've designed and this has really been a lot of the whole focus of of all the products has been has been imaging
1: mhm i've always well, we wondered I'm sorry. Go right ahead, please.
0: You know what we've been trying to do is to bring the the performance characteristics of the you know the world's greatest most expensive speakers into speakers that made sense for real real people. And you know again, the imaging has been a very key key part of that.
1: Hmm. I've I've always wondered about imaging. You've got two speakers. Typically, you're you have worked with systems that have two speakers, of so stereo systems. Um. How do you place images in between them? I mean, I know it has to do with with the relative level of one to the other, but how can a speaker by itself determine how well those images get placed?
0: Well, there are a lot of aspects to speaker design which relate to the quality of the imaging, although imaging is not something that can be measured. It can only be subjectively experienced. And the fact is, is that imaging really occurs in your brain. You know, it doesn't occur between the speakers per se, but it's something when your ears take in the signals from the two speakers, your brain processes those signals and it gives you that, that sense of imaging.
1: So that's mm-hmm. really what, what goes on. So how can a speaker uh, impact that? Process?
0: Well, again, there are a lot of aspects of the speaker performance, w- the performance, which really uh, relate to how well it images. One of the things that we found as time has gone on is that the width of a speaker is very important. It seems as though the narrower the speaker, the better it images. And this is something, you know, that, oh, years ago in the 70s, a good friend of mine, John Dahlquist, who was a very you know, important speaker designer in that day you oh, know, yeah. was really focused on. And, you know, it's something that we focused on as we've gone along over the years and from, you know, the, the original definitive products as we went further on and then now with the Golden Ear technology products, we've tried to bring the front baffle as narrow as possible. Other things, too, the diffraction off the baffle, you don't want hard edges on the baffle, you don't want projections on the baffle, going out in front of the drivers, the smoothness of the driver response, how well they're integrated together, just Mm -hmm. many, many things that seem to relate to the imaging qualities. You know, when we launched Definitive way back in 1990, our first products were bipolar speakers, and I've become pretty well known for bipolar speakers. And at, at that point in time, we felt that this was a good way to get the sound to basically escape from the box and sound more sourceless. But as our abilities and as our understanding of things have developed, we found that by doing a very narrow profile direct radiating speaker, we could actually get a bigger image while getting a lot more clarity and specificity in terms of the placement of the events across the sound stage than we could get with a bipolar.
1: Mm. Now were you designing bipolars for the uh, for for two channel systems for having them in front of you? Yes, yes. So was that uh, speakers facing forward and back, not side to side, I assume?
0: Exactly, forwards and backwards. Mhm. And,
1: and this is then, something that actually actually dated back to the first
0: speaker that we designed, you know, that I designed I guess back in uh, In 1973, 74, at Polk, we called it a controlled dispersion array. And it was also a speaker that radiated forwards and backwards.
1: Uh, This is much like uh, electrostatics uh, and uh, uh, what's the other kind? Oh, magnetic planar speakers that radiate forwards and backwards as well. How do you feel about that uh, type of speaker design?
0: Well, that's was really the inspiration for doing what we were doing. You know, mm. I myself have always used full range, not not electrostatics with the subwoofer, but a full range electrostat like the quad. Or I guess back in college I was listening to the KLH nines, which was a very, you know, early full range electrostat, full range planar speaker. And I always felt that this type of a loudspeaker was doing something, especially at the time, something that you couldn't get out of a out of a box speaker in terms of the imaging and the boxless sound quality. So those were the inspiration. But, you know, as we know, these full-range planar speakers are very, very large. They're very inefficient. You need a lot of power to drive them. And they have limitations in terms of bass performance and in terms of how loud they'll go. And so they're, 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 some of them can be quite, Quite good. Something like the big giant sound labs are pretty amazing, but at the same time, they don't make a lot of sense for real people. You know, they're mm. very expensive too. So we've uh, gone gone beyond that. We think with a with a you know direct radiating speaker that has some some of the very same performance characteristics of these big giant full range planar speakers, but they are. Much more efficient. They have excellent bass response. They fit into a normal home environment well. And <laughs> they're uh, a lot more affordable.
1: Right, exactly. Uh, we have a couple questions in the chat room already. Uh, Aaron B. wants to know, uh, could you explain the advantages of bipolar speakers and what they offer in terms of room-filling natural sound? And I was going to ask this as well in terms of with a back wave, that is with a with a sound wave coming off the back as much as from the front, you have to deal with the reflections off the wall. How do you how do you do that?
0: Well, again, this is one of the problems with a bipolar speaker. You know, as I've said, you know, the bipolar speakers early on were a way that we fe- felt we could get the sound to escape from the box and sound more boxless.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: the the and, and they have they have the ability to do that relative to the forward radiating box speakers that were around back in the 90s when we developed those. But what we found recently is that our our abilities and our, our technology has advanced to the point where we can get a direct radiating speaker to actually image bigger than a bipolar speaker and at the same time have
1: greater clarity and specificity. Hmm. So you'd pre- you'd prefer a direct radiating speaker without uh, a back wave if you can get one to sound boxless. Is that what you're saying? <laughs>
0: Exactly. You know, the back wave does cause a cancellation effect, which is, you know, not not desirable. And, you know, again, I think if you listen to the speakers, people have agreed that the current speakers really, you know, that we're doing at Golden Ear really have uh, unbelievable imaging characteristics. And they're
1: just pretty, pretty special. Right. And they're certainly very narrow. So that uh, addresses that uh, issue that you were talking about earlier as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Von Dutch in the uh, chat room asks, I wonder what he thinks of horn speakers. Well, a horn horn
0: speaker, you know, a horn is a way, and this is interesting, the horn is a way of getting a better impedance match between the diaphragm and the room itself, but horns intrinsically add a lot of colorations to the sound. Now, it's interesting that you would ask that because the tweeter that we're using in the Golden... Golden ear speakers is uh, we call it a high velocity folded ribbon. It's really an evolution of the original Heil. And one of the advantages of this particular of this particular tweeter is it also has a much better impedance match to the air in the room, so it couples a lot better to the air in the room. But it doesn't have the coloration problems that you have with a horn speaker.
1: So horn speakers. I'm sorry. Go right ahead. But I
0: should, should mention that at the Capitol Audio sh- Fair show last June, I guess, down there, Washington, D.C., there was a gentleman who had uh, was a one hundred eighty thousand dollar pair of speakers that was assembled from some extremely high end horn components uh, from Japan that I felt actually
1: did sound extremely exquisite.
0: So really? I guess it can be done if cost is
1: no effect. <laughs> well, if you can, I'd love to know who that was because I would contact them and, and uh, write about them on my website because uh, I'm always looking for exotic, very expensive stuff to, to write about. So, uh, so maybe offline you can uh, remember who that was and let me know. Absolutely. Um, here's a question from F-Loop. Um, how has the use of measurement and simulation changed in your design process over the years?
0: Well, interestingly, we feel very strongly that measurement and, you know, measurement techniques that attempt to simulate anechoic measurements are not good enough to do high-quality loudspeaker design. And all of our measurements and development of the products are done, done in a full-size, full-scale anechoic chamber.
1: Mm. Which you built uh, for, for GoldenEar?
0: Well, we built it, yes. We built it for our, our technology group.
1: Mm-hmm. I should mention here at this point, we've been talking about GoldenEar Technology, which is your new and current company that you're, you have founded to uh, continue in your quest, I, I, I should say, for the perfect loudspeaker. Um, tell us a little bit about that. How'd that get started? Uh, what, what do you, uh, what's going on there now?
0: Well, basically, um, I left, uh, I left definitive. Oh, just about two years ago, actually almost exactly two years ago. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Um, uh, my wife was hoping that we were going to retire and just with the world and enjoy ourselves. And there was some <laughs> thought of that, but I guess I feel I'm a little too young for that. And as loudspeakers are my art. I've been a part of this industry now for 40 years. I have a lot of friends and I really enjoy designing the products, developing the speakers. You know, it's a, it's a quite an in, amazing thing to have a concept and a thought that, you know, goes into your mind and you think about it and you're visualizing a product and then you move forward and work on it, and along and along, that thought becomes reality. It's very satisfying. It's very
1: exciting. Mm-hmm. So you weren't quite ready to, to uh, hand in the, uh, the uh, T-square and the drafting board, huh? <laughs> no, no,
0: no. And you know, And I'm not actually the engineer. I'm the designer, but we have a full engineering staff that does this, as well as my my business partner, Don Javog. And, you know, one of the really important things in getting this project off the ground is, you know, Don had retired. He built himself a house on the beach in Eleuthera. He enjoys fishing. And, you know, he was happily going along in that direction when I convinced him to come out of retirement and join the project, because Don is really, you know, the operations person, and he's the person who really makes sure things get done.
1: Mhm. And one of the things that really impresses me about the Golden Ear speakers, which are relatively new on the market, only a year or less, right?
0: Yeah, we we launched this fall and we began shipping product oh in December.
1: Mhm. One of the things that impresses me about them, I heard them at CEDIA, I heard them at CES, is they really do sound great, I have to tell you. Uh and they're relatively affordable. How did you manage that? Ah, a miracle! <laughs> <laughs> and then a miracle happened—spinning the and dreidel, the right?
0: Well, I guess you know we were—you know—we're we're, we're, very—we're very focused on affordability. You know, when you design a loudspeaker or any audio product even some very even most very very expensive products you're always making design compromises of one sort or another relative to cost it's just part of the skill of the designer to do this and you know hopefully we make the right compromises but also you know a lot of things a lot of things in the speakers cost a lot. There's no way to get around it. For instance, our tweeter costs over three times as much as a very, very high quality one inch dome tweeter. It's just hmm. the way it is. We made the decision. It was worthwhile going in that direction. But at the same time, a lot of a lot of things with loud, a lot of parts of loudspeaker design, a lot of decisions don't necessarily cost more money to make. You just have to know what the right decision is. For instance, one of the things that I use to illustrate this is the apical glue bond. You know, the apical glue bond is the bond between the voice coil and the cone on a driver. And all the energy from the voice coil is transferred through that glue to the cone. It doesn't cost more money to use the right glue but you have to know the different sonic characteristics of the glues and which ones really sound better. Mm. So making these decisions is very, very important and having the knowledge to back it up.
1: Uh, I should just make sure that everyone there understands uh, who's listening that the way uh, a a basic cone-type speaker works, which is what we're talking about, an electrical signal comes in, it is passed through a coil of wire called the voice coil. This voice coil is attached to the diaphragm, which is a cone of material, and the voice coil sits in a magnetic field, and as the current gen- runs through it from the audio signal, it causes the voice coil to vibrate, which causes the diaphragm to vibrate, which pushes air into the room uh, and creates the acoustic sound. This is the transducer that changes electrical- an electrical signal into an acoustical signal.
0: Right, although, and that's true, you know, in terms of the woofers and the mid-range drivers in our speakers, the tweeter that we're using works very differently. Uh, Ah, yes. You know, normally, if you have a dome, a dome is like a a dome which has a voice coil attached to the base of it, which moves in a magnetic field in a similar way to the voice coil that works with a a mid-range or a a woofer driver. Now, a, a, a normal ribbon tweeter, and ours is a type of ribbon tweeter, would have a membrane which which is in some sort of a field, an electrostatic is an electrostatic field, another type of a ma- magnetic ribbon tweeter is in a magnetic field, and it moves forwards and backwards in a similar way to conventional the way conventional drivers work. This tweeter that we're using, this high velocity folded ribbon, as I say, is an evolution of the Heil tweeters that came out the first time in the 70s. And it is folded like an accordion and it squeezes air like an accordion does and squeezes the air out. And so Mm. it works very differently. And as I say, it's a much, much better impedance match to the room. And the end result is incredible clarity, but extremely low distortion. You know, dome tweeters, when you measure their distortion above about 10 kilohertz, there's a fair amount of distortion. But with this high velocity folded ribbon, there's almost no distortion. And the difference is that things sound much, much more natural. It just, there is no, what I call hi-fi zing. You know, a lot of hi-fi equipment has this artificial zinginess that seems to add an additional layer of high-frequency information, which really isn't natural. It can beef up or zing up some... uh, Dead recordings, but in reality, it's a form of distortion which we don't want. And this high velocity folded ribbon is just silky, silky smooth. In fact, I believe that it is the best tweeter that I've ever heard outside of what I consider to be the ultimate reference, which is the Ionic tweeter. You know, Ionic tweeters, you know, all tweeters almost have some sort of a diaphragm that moves the air. The Ionic tweeter. Ionizes a layer of air itself, and that ionized layer of air is what is moved. So it's very, very special. And this high-velocity folded ribbon is
1: the closest
0: that we've heard to that.
1: Mm-hmm. It seems to me that the, that the ribbon being folded or pleated like an accordion, uh, each pleat doesn't have to move very far. It, it has to move very little distance, and the combined effect is actually moving much more air than than that than that amount of motion would otherwise allow.
0: Well, exactly. But even part of that, you know, that's related to that is the moving mass. Normally, the moving mass of, a, of any driver and let's say a tweeter, the moving mass of a dome tweeter is the dome. The moving mass of a ribbon tweeter, which is moving forwards and backwards, is the whole membrane with the high velocity. You know, this is the whole membrane has to be accelerated, stopped and moved back. Mm -hmm. With the high-velocity folded ribbon, each pleat is what's moved, accelerated, stopped, and moved back. So the moving mass is really the moving mass of one individual pleat, and it's much, much, much lower than anything
1: else. Right. Uh, I love, by the way, the ion tweeter, or what some call the corona tweeter, uh, which is essentially massless, other than the mass of the air itself, which is extremely low.
0: Yeah, those tweeters are quite amazing. You know, I have a collection of, I guess I have Duquesnes and then I have Fanes. And these were ionic tweeters that were made back in the 50s. Um, and then, you know, Dr. Hill made a speaker, it was called uh, Plasmatronics. It was a it was a plasma speaker where he had a helium as the gas and then it glowed blue and he used that corona or that ionic. Tweeter down actually to 500 cycles or so, but there were a few problems. There are a few problems with these ionic tweeters, including the fact that the ionized air is not really safe to uh, to breathe.
1: <laughs> right, right, and it goes into the room, and and you really don't want to breathe that. I agree.
0: <laughs> it's, it's ozone. It's ozone. So it's ozone, not Yeah, good. but of course. For the dedicated audiophile, sacrifices have to be made.
1: (laughs) Uh, Eric Duckman in the chat room asks, now that's Dr. Oscar Heil we're talking about, not Bob Heil, the microphone guy, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, Bob Heil was actually on on Leo Laporte's radio show last weekend uh, talking about microphones, but uh, they might share the same name, but I don't know if they're related or not, but it's not the same guy. Absolutely not. Okay. uh, Virgil in the chat room asks: Have you ever designed a speaker that uh, sends sound out in a 180 degree arc, or what we might call really an omnidirectional speaker? Have you ever worked in that field?
0: Well, three—you mean a 360 degree? That's really more.
1: Yeah, that's really more what it would be. Yeah.
0: Well, the bipolar speakers approximate that to some degree. Kind of do, yeah. They come close to that. I've never made. Really, a a full three hundred sixty degree omnidirectional speaker. You know, this is something which you know people people felt at one point in time was an ideal radiation pattern for a speaker, but in reality, you know, I don't I don't think it is. You know, really, what you want, you know, as I've said, is you want the sound to be coming in a coherent beam directly from the speaker to your ears Mm -hmm. and actually you know and this is something else you know each ear ideally wants to hear its proper channel in other words ideally the left ear would hear the left channel and the right ear would hear the right channel and you wouldn't get crosstalk distortion you know there's a there's a um, research project which is going on right now at princeton involved with 3d listening and they, my friend David Chesky was telling me yesterday that, you know, and I've read up on it that they're they're finding that this interaural crosstalk distortion is one of the most important things to eliminate in order to get better 3D imaging. So actually having a 360-degree radiation pattern would put a lot of confused sounds into the room, and you really want it to just be coming directly at
1: your ears. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've actually heard of that Princeton research, and uh, I intend to look into it more because it it does sound very interesting. It reminds me of uh, the 3D Audio Association and also Jerry Mahabub at Gen Audio, both of which are working on 3D simulated 3D sound fields uh, in different approaches. But uh, here's here's yet another example of that, and I think they are bringing up the importance of crosstalk. That is, the left ear hearing the right signal and the right ear hearing the left signal, and how that can be a problem. Right. <clears throat> so, um, let's see, got another couple of questions in the chat room here. Let me uh, let me look for them here. Oh, um, Aaron B. wants to know uh, where he can go hear Golden Ear Speakers. He's in Phoenix, and... Uh, he see, he's been doing some research as we've been talking. <laughs> and he says the only dealer in Phoenix uh, only does custom work and they don't have a storefront. Uh, that's that's home,
0: I think it's called home theater technology. But I can tell him that if he calls the dealer up, Mike Kowitz is the gentleman there. Mike will bring a pair of Tritons to his home, set them up in his home and allow him to hear just what they're going to sound like in the home.
1: No kidding. Really? Yep. Wow! Now that's what I call customer service. Even before they're a customer.
0: Well, this is the key. You know, we're very focused on. You know, most of our dealers can demonstrate speakers in Phoenix. This happens to be, a, you know, a custom a custom only guy. But we're very focused on selling through specialty dealers who really do give excellent customer service and have the ability to demonstrate the speakers because. With high-quality speakers, well, high-quality audio and high-quality video, you know, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, and you really want to, you know, you want to hear, you want to see, and you want to deal with people that have expertise, and this is why we're going through a specialized dealer network that can offer this.
1: But that's got to be a problem because specialized dealers are basically losing tons of ground to big-box stores, aren't they?
0: Well, the big box stores have taken away a lot of business. But as we're seeing, you know, there are some issues, you know, out there with the big box stores. They just compete, compete, compete with each other. And the specialized dealers who really were the the backbone of our industry, you know, have continued to move along. And the ones that have done a good job are prospering and they're out there. Absolutely.
1: Mm. And so you're seeking them out. You're not selling your speakers at, on uh, at, at big box stores, then is that what you're saying?
0: No, we're selling 100% exclusively through audio/video specialty retailers. Mm-hmm. And you know, as you mentioned, if you go up on our website, goldenear.com, you can see under the dealer locator, you can see who your nearest dealer is.
1: Mm. So you're not you're not selling online then either, I assume. No, no. You want no, people to you want people to hear th- these things before they buy, which I admire and applaud you for greatly because. Uh, I've always said in terms of video, when high definition first came out, you know, people were going, well, is it really that much better than standard definition? And you can talk about it and write about it as I did till you're blue in the face, but it doesn't really make an impact until you actually see it. And the same thing I know is true for audio. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, let's see. F loop in the chat room asks, have loudspeaker drivers become better in recent years? Is it easier to make a good speaker today than it was when you started?
0: Well, certainly the quality, the quality of the speakers has improved. The technology has improved. We've gone from, we've gone from paper cones to, well, we're using polypropylene cones. A lot of the details have, have improved, but base, the basic technologies really have remained the same, you know, in terms of what we're doing. Even as I say, the uh, the tweeter that we're using is an evolution of the Heil tweeter, which first was available back in the 70s. Mm-hmm.
1: But Did you did they, you actually uh, modify the Heil tweeter or was that done by the supplier?
0: Well, we've been working on the evolution, the, the modification of the tweeter. The tweeter has gone through a lot of... Uh, evolution in the uh in the last 30 years or so so Mm -hmm. even though it's working with the same basic concept it's very different it's very different in terms of the materials that are used you know the we have high high temperature uh materials for the diaphragm now so we don't have power handling issues so we've really done a lot of work on that tweeter but you know in terms of the technology i'm just thinking out loud about the question in terms of the uh the technology of the drivers, I think things have improved, measurements have improved, and I think the, the listening has improved. So we've gotten a lot better at listening in terms of the product. So we've evolved, you know, our technology to follow along with that.
1: Hmm. So you're saying that, that listeners have actually improved over the years as well.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. But interestingly, you know, when you go back historically, you know, to early... Early audio products, you know, even things like the amplifiers, you know, from a very high-end, tweaky standpoint. You know, I happen to like tube amplifiers myself. You know, the tube amplifiers are very well thought of. Single-ended triode amplifiers, which is something that dates back, you know, very, very early, have now become popular again. And some early speakers, like the KLH9 or the Quad Electrostat, you know, are still thought of very, very highly. So in reality, you know, we have had high quality. Um, we've had some high quality transducers and the electronics, but I think the source, the quality of the source material has also improved rather dramatically over the years. Uh, Even good if, point. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people still love vinyl as I do, Um but the quality of the vinyl reproduction certainly has improved dramatically from, you know, 1960 or so in terms of the turntables and in terms of the, you know, in terms of the, the you know, the pickups and such. And then, of course, we have CDs and digital, you know, when CD originally came out, people were saying, ah, here it is. Perfect reproduction blows away the, you know, the vinyl, et cetera. And as we found out. It really didn't, especially in the beginning, but the quality of the recordings have continued to improve. The mastering has improved and the the general technology has improved. We now have high resolution digital technology available. Some of the downloads, like from David Chesky's site, you know, Mm -hmm. has really you know, H D tracks has really, you know, improved the quality of the program material. So, you know, this has helped in terms of what we're listening to today.
1: Reminds me to ask you how you feel about the whole digital versus analog debate. In two aspects, at least one is tubes versus solid state in terms of amplification, and two, vinyl versus uh, digital CD or, or better. Has has uh, digital uh, fi- have digital files, say twenty four ninety six files, come up to the level of analog of vinyl? Will they ever? I think that the I think the latest digital
0: files have really gotten very very close. Although interestingly the recording still seems to make the big difference. And even with standard CDs if you have a really really super recording like David's recordings or Um, the reference recordings, you know, Dr. Johnson record, you know, these recordings are great. And when you listen to them, even on conventional CDs, they sound great, but a less than super duper recording doesn't matter how high quality the playback is. It doesn't matter. But, (laughs) you know, you know, vinyl, I mean, a good recording on vinyl, of course, you're not listening to a lot of little dots, you know, you're really hearing the real deal you're hearing exactly what was recorded and this 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 gives you a a connection to the music that i don't think we can maybe ever duplicate with with digital now Hmm. in terms of tubes versus solid state you know again it's a very personal thing um i've been listening to tubes for well going back to my college years i guess Way back in college, I remember I was listening with a Dyna Stereo 80. And, you know, this was the time everybody was throwing out all the roll tube amplifiers and buying solid state. And one day in the Sunday Classifieds in Baltimore, I saw somebody had a, I guess it was an old Moran 7C 8B for sale. And I just decided, oh, why not? I'll go out and try it. Well, I got it. I tried it. I brought it home. I hooked it up and I said... Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> something's has something's happening here. So you know, and then I remember back in the early seventies, I I went up to uh, Julius Futterman's little office factory on Seventy Second Street and Broadway, and. Ordered my pair of Futtermans, you know these are OTL or output transformerless tube amps, and you know he gave him a deposit. And a few months later, he got a phone call: "Sandy, your amps are ready, you know." And so the tube tubes are excellent. We have seen, you know, in recent years, certainly up at the upper end of the of the you know the electronics availability, things like the you know Nelson Passes amps or whatever are. Super duper, you know, so mm-hmm. I guess we have, you know, finally brought solid state to the point where it's maybe comparable to the tubes, but a little bit different. You know, just like with speakers, nothing is perfect and you have to pick what you like the best. The same thing goes on with the electronics.
1: Mm hmm. Exactly right. Uh, Beatmaster asks, uh, do you take DIY speaker building seriously or would you recommend people uh avoid that or how do you feel about DIY
0: well realistically speaking unless you're just putting together a kit that has been professionally engineered i think the concept of making you know making your own crossovers and selecting a group of drivers and building the cabinet you don't you don't have the measurement techniques you don't have the measurement abilities to really work with that to get to where you want to be so i don't i don't think it makes Really makes a lot of sense. I mean, designing speakers is a very long and tedious process that requires a lot of expertise and a lot of really good equipment.
1: Mm-hmm. As you would, as you should know, I would say, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, you mentioned crossovers, and I wanted to bring up also the issue of uh, bi-amping and bi-wiring as opposed to crossovers. Crossovers, just for those who don't know, uh, it are the electronic circuits inside a speaker that take the different frequencies and route them to the different drivers that, that they're meant for. So the low frequencies go to the big driver. The mid frequencies go to the mid-range driver. Those high frequencies go to the tweeter. Uh, the crossover does more than just that, of course. Uh, but there's always this debate about whether or not uh, one gains anything by by wiring or by amping, which basically means amping uh, amplifying each of area of the frequency spectrum for a given driver separately how do you feel about that whole issue
0: well if you're doing classic bi-amping that would mean that you've got the amplifiers hooked up directly to the drivers, and you're doing the crossover external. You know before the amplifier. Mm-hmm. Now again, there are a lot of people that don't exactly understand what goes on with the crossover. The crossover is very finely tuned in combination with the driver. You know a lot of people think you've got a crossover at three kilohertz, and you buy amp. You put two amplifiers on, and you get an electronic crossover and you dial it to three kilohertz and then you've got it properly done. This is not what goes on when we design a speaker. You know, you're working with each turn of uh, on the coil to get it to sound exactly correct, to get it to measure exactly correct. So biamping. amping, if you were to design a speaker from scratch and you had fully the expertise to design the electronic crossover in combination with the amplifiers and the, and the drivers, you know, there are some theoretical advantages to that. But otherwise, you really end up way behind the eight ball.
1: Hmm. And doesn't the crossover also need to, when you're designing a crossover for a given speaker, don't you also need to take into account the cabinet and the acoustics within the cabinet and so on?
0: Well, this is all part of the part of the recipe. Yeah, you're taking into account everything. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a a crossover at a specific crossover point but you start you start with a crossover point that you're theorizing would be about the right place to cross the drivers over and then you start to work with it in much the same way i would say that a painter who's painting a painting painting, you know, is blending the colors, you know, in certain areas so that they blend together and you get a certain effect that you're looking for, you're really doing exactly the same thing with the drivers. You know, speaker design is as much art as it is science. Mm -hmm. You know, a good example, too, are the you know, the subwoofers. You know, in the Tritons, we have built-in powered subwoofers in each speaker. And this is a tremendous advantage, not just because we're getting the subwoofer box out of the room, not just because we have two subwoofers rather than one, but because we can engineer the blending of the subwoofer to be really as perfect as possible with the rest of the speaker. Otherwise, you've got some subwoofer box. You don't know where it's physically going to be in the room. And if you have one subwoofer box to cross over to two speakers, unless it's right in the middle, evenly between the two speakers, whatever you do to optimize its crossover to one speaker, if you are actually able to do that without the proper equipment, would be different because it's going to be a different distance from the other speaker. So by engineering the subwoofer as part of the speaker, we can get it perfectly blended The same way engineering the speaker with the tweeter as part of the speaker gets it perfectly blended. So this is very, very important. You know, also having two subwoofers in the room breaks up the standing waves or the eigenmodes, which is very, very important. But, you know, again, it comes back to the whole concept of, you know, do-it-yourself speakers. Well, if you've got a subwoofer that you're trying to blend with your speakers, that's a do-it-yourself part of the... Part of the equation that really you need proper equipment and expertise to do uh,
1: what about though the issue of placement of the subwoofer and how that is i've always believed often different the best place to put a subwoofer is often different than the play. the best place to put your uh main speakers uh with a with a built-in subwoofer such as you have You've removed that variable, which might be a good thing, but what about the placement issue? Well, again,
0: the placement issue has many aspects to it. To me, the critical thing with the placement of a subwoofer is to get it properly blended with the rest of the speaker, and that happens when it's right where the rest of the speaker is.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and where your, a- where your crossover can deal with it at, at as well in an optimal fashion. Exactly. Now, if you put
0: a, a If you put a subwoofer in the corner, you're going to get more output. So you could say, well, that's the ideal place to get the most output. But to me, the critical thing is getting it blended properly. You know, on our speakers, we have a level control on the subwoofer, so you can still optimize the output level of the subwoofer to get it where you want it. But from especially from a musical standpoint, to get it properly blended with the speaker, I think, is the key and the most Mm -hmm. important thing.
1: Sure. Sure. Um, uh, Web4936 asks, can you describe the process of designing from scratch a new speaker model? You alluded to this briefly earlier, but I wonder if you could uh, just describe that process. (laughs) (laughs) In general terms.
0: Well, you know, first you need a concept. You know, and you have to come up with the basic concept of the speaker. You know, again, I'll just, you know, I'll relate it to an artist painting a painting. You know, if I'm designing a speaker, I have to, again, the concept. Then I want to, you know, what what drivers do I want to use in this? And again, I'm familiar with the drivers and such. You know, in the particular case of the Golden Ears, I knew I wanted to use this high-velocity folded ribbon which was important. And basically what happens, you know, with, at GoldenEar is I, I I do the concept of the speaker. I do the concept of the of the physical design of the speaker as well as basically what it's going to be, the basic driver complement and such. And then I turn it over to our engineering staff. And our engineering staff, which is about 10 people, then go at it to take what I, you know, envision and turn it into reality and they actually design the specific drivers although I work with industrial design you know again on polishing the look that we conceive of for the speakers and you know the industrial design of things like the baskets or or you know in the particular case of our mid-range drivers I came up with the concept for the phase plug design which I felt was something that could add some performance as well as would look interesting. And it happens that it does both. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we evolve it. They come up, then they build prototypes. They put prototypes into the chamber. They start to measure. They design, you know, we have to design in the case of the powered subwoofers. We designed our own amplifier from scratch. We have another person on our staff who's you know, Bob Johnston, who's extremely expert in doing this, we one of the few companies building this type of product that's actually designing the amplifier electronics from scratch. Mm-hmm. And everything, the prototypes are built again, and they start measuring, and they start tweaking, and they tweak in the chamber, and then they bring it into the listening rooms, and they tweak in the listening rooms, they bring it back to the chamber, back and forth, and then we get involved. And this is some of the process that goes on.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, the, uh, the Tritons, which are the larger uh, models that you have, uh, and maybe true of the smaller ones, too, I don't remember, uh, use passive radiators in the subwoofer. And I was going to ask you about your feeling about the difference or your preference about sealed versus uh, ported uh, boxes, which particularly—cabinets, uh, which particularly apply to lower-frequency drivers— Uh, And you have decided to use passive radiators. Can you speak a little bit about that?
0: Well, I've been using passive radiators in the speakers that I've designed really back to the beginning, to the first uh, Polk Model 9. And we find that a passive radiator... Um, is a you know it's a way of loading the base drivers. you know with with a ported speaker, you've got a, a port and it creates two peaks that load the base driver. you know with a transmission line which is using a very long extended folded line behind the driver, you know you've got a mass of air in that line which does a very good job of loading the driver then it's tuned down to a frequency below, the resonant frequency of the driver in the cabinet. The passive radiators as we utilize them have a mass that is similar to the mass of air that you would have in a transmission line, but at the same time it's much better controlled because you've got it, you know, also on a on a spring or or you know on the spider, and it's a lot more efficient way of building and design, you know, a transmission line is a very, very expensive and complex construction, which is very, very large. And with the passive radiator, you can get the same, pretty much the same type of loading, but in a much, much more compact, you know, enclosure and also much more efficiently done. You know, as we were talking about, how do we get the performance and also the tremendous value and properly, Properly engineered passive radiators work really,
1: really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Excellent. Uh, So Cal Ray Jr. uh, brings up a point about uh, the subs, which I didn't before, and I would like to return to that for just a moment, uh, which is putting the sub in the speaker, as you say, lets you uh, blend its sound with the rest of the speaker very well. But as I pointed out, it does not let you move it around. And the reason it's important to move it around, as far as I'm concerned, is to be able to deal with room modes. Uh, because you don't know what room your speaker is going to go into, just like you don't know what room a, a conventional subwoofer is going to go into. Uh, and being able to move it around and put it in the right place for, in order to minimize room modes becomes important. How do you deal with that? Well, again with With two
0: active subwoofers it's it's the way that it relates to the room modes is spread out quite a bit. So in other words, if you have one one active subwoofer, it excites a whole set of room modes. If you have two active subwoofers, they activate two different sets of room modes which tend to balance them out. and then again, you also have the ability to move the speakers with the subwoofers around the room a little bit. You know, again, we're focused on getting the best musical blending between Mm -hmm. the subwoofer and the rest of the system, as opposed to, you know, creating the highest level of bass energy in the room. And we deal with getting more bass energy in the room with the level (laughs) control on the subwoofer.
1: How do you feel about speaker placement in general, where if you have a rectangular room... Uh, is there a formula for, for where to place the speakers and the listener, for that matter, uh, for, for best sound in terms of acoustics?
0: Well, I happen to like speakers placed quite far apart. You know, if the speaker images well, you know, and you can get a nice sound field between the speakers, I like the speakers placed at least as far apart as you are from the speakers, and I like the speakers towed in at the listener.
1: Mm-hmm. And part
0: of the reason for this is to cut down on the interaural crosstalk distortion. Mm, You know, if two speakers sitting close together, both ears hear both speakers, much more so than what happens when you get the speakers spread far apart and basically aimed at each ear. So Mm -hmm. I tend to like it like that. You know, again, speaker placement relative to people's rooms is really a question of optimizing you know, the speakers in the room and this varies, you know, room to room and in terms of actually where the, you know, the listener is seated.
1: Right. Exactly. Um, let's see. Got another question in the chat room here. Uh, what was it? Oh, he, uh, uh, a Baron has a question about one of your older products, uh, the subwoofer in the Polk audio monitor seven. Uh, he wonders how it works since it's passive. I, obviously you need to amplify it from the outside.
0: Well, that, again, that's a passive radiator system. That was a a 6.5-inch active driver with a, well, the original 7 was an 8-inch passive, and then the later 7 was a 10-inch passive, but that's driven by the pressure in the air inside the cabinet, which is generated by the 6.5-inch driver.
1: Ah, ah, so it had a a larger passive radiator, but not the same size uh, active driver. Right. We
0: find, you know, it's again, it's part of our experience that you ideally you want a passive radiator that has two times the radiating surface area of the active driver which is driving it.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Um, You know, the reason for that is, is that. The passive radiator, which is putting out more energy at the lower frequencies, is moving much further. So if you have a larger passive radiator, it cuts down on the movement sum,
1: which is advantageous. Mm-hmm. Uh, F-Loop wonders, why haven't active loudspeakers, not uh, why haven't they taken off? Now, we've got, obviously, act, uh, active, that is, powered subwoofers in your speakers. But and there there are some companies that make fully powered speakers all the way throughout the entire frequency range. Why isn't that more popular? Well,
0: this is a good question. Historically, that is exactly correct. Powered loudspeakers, you know, powered powered loudspeakers have never been really popular. We've seen a lot of them in the high fidelity arena. Now we're not talking about low quality little tiny powered things but right. you know talking about the sort of speakers that we listen to why haven't they been popular i think it has to do with the fact that people normally will have a receiver or they'll have an amplifier and of course the powered speaker already has its own built-in amplifier so it doesn't make sense to use it with a regular receiver or such. So I think just doesn't, it's an, almost a marketing thing and it doesn't package with the type of electronics that people are normally using in our field.
1: True enough. People already typically have the the electronics they need, so they don't need the amp in the speaker. But I've always thought that having the amp in the speaker, if it's designed well, the like you were talking about earlier, uh, optimizing the crossover, say, for all the different drivers in your speaker. Similarly, you could optimize an amplifier for that speaker um, and really get the best possible sound out of it without wondering, well, what kind of amplifier is going to be driving this speaker? Uh, It seems a good approach to me, and I know that it's done in professional studios sometimes. Genelec comes to mind. Uh, but, uh, But as you say, probably it's because... Simply people already have their electronics and they're not going to spend money on amplifiers that they're not going to use.
0: That's my thought. You know, we've discussed it a lot over the years. And the fact is they've never really been successful within our arena. Why haven't they been successful? There are there are advantages, theoretically, to doing it that way. But I don't think it's something
1: that people really want to buy. And if we can't Mm -hmm. sell it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, one last question for you. We don't have much time left. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, your opinion on this subject that I ask a number of people about, which is exotic versus quote conventional speaker cables.
0: Well, this is re- this is really an interesting point because back in the mid seventies, I introduced, I think, the first commercially viable exotic speaker cable while i was at polk we called it cobra cable at first changed the name to sound cable and it was 144 strand litz wire woven at right angles you know we've been pretty tweaky since the beginning and speaker wire was something that we got into and discovered it really made quite a difference in the sound quality now there are a lot of speaker cables some better than others but there's no question the speaker cables are important And a lot of people still feel that that sound cable product that we made and marketed back in the mid 70s is still among the absolute best of the speaker cables available because it was able is able to pass a square wave and actually had better high, better measurable high frequency performance than you could get from many, many other types of cables. So I think I think speaker cables are important. But again they all sound different and you have to audition them and decide which one works best and sounds best to you in combination with your speakers and the amplifier that you're using.
1: Mhm. As always the best advice use your own ears as the final arbiter, huh?
0: Absolutely. What sounds best to you is what sounds best to you. <laughs>
1: Excellent. On that note, I want to thank Sandy Gross for being my guest today. And uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much. My
0: pleasure. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Great. Uh, You can learn more about uh, Sandy's current products at goldenear.com. And uh, my online homes are ultimateavmag.com and hometheater.com. You can email me at scott at twit.tv and follow me on Twitter at htgeekscott. Next week, my guest geek is scheduled to be Eric Adol, sound designer on many major movies, including Megamind, iRobot, Monsters vs. Aliens, and Transformers. So I'm sure it's going to be a great conversation, and I hope you'll join me then. Until then, geek out.